0: Good afternoon and welcome to Noon Edition. I'm your host, Mary Catherine Carmichael, and we want to send our best out to Bob Zaltzberg, who's unable to be here with us today. Our topic for discussion today is primaries and the 2 2006 elections. Joining me here in the studio is Indiana University political science professor Marjorie Hershey. Hi, Marjorie. Thanks Hi. for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, what, Mary Catherine. We, this is so rare. We have an all-girl crew today. This just never happens. <laughs> uh, oh, my my, my uh, engineer just popped in and uh, takes exception to that. But sorry, Mike, we'll we'll, uh, we'll take that as a uh, noted exception. We have a token male. <clears throat> we have uh, such a wonderful opportunity here to and thank you for coming in. You're one of our uh, very few frequent flyer guests. And uh, so
1: (laughs) it's my pleasure.
0: Yeah, we're, we're really excited to have you here. And I think that there's a lot to talk about. I wanted to begin today by talking, um, doing kind of a primaries 101. Um, this is something, you know, we, we've we always had primaries, in, or, you know, at least in, in recent memory. And why is that? How did those evolve? Uh, what function do they serve, if you don't mind?
1: Absolutely. The interesting thing about primaries is that we are the only democracy in the world that uses them to a very great extent. And we've been using them for 100 years now. You'd think that if they were a, a wonderful invention that other democracies would have taken them up by now. But interestingly enough, uh, almost nobody has. This started in the end of the 1800s. The primary laws were finally passed at the very beginning of the 1900s because the progressives were so concerned about boss rule in the cities. They felt that candidates were being chosen by a small group of party elites who were unrepresentative of most of the voters and who would pick whoever it was that they pleased, including some warm bodies that they were paying back for loyal service to the party.
0: So kind of the good old boy network is...
1: That's right, the smoke-filled rooms Mm -hmm. that many people imagine still exist in the United States and that have been gone for decades now. But uh, when the progressives took a look at the boss rule that existed in the late 1800s, they said, what we really need to do is to remember that if the choice in a democracy is between, you know, one Turkey chosen by one smoke-filled room and another Turkey chosen by another smoke-filled room, that's not much of a choice. So they said, and Robert LaFollette from Wisconsin was one of the main um, pushers of this who said, I shouldn't say pushers, um, promoters of this who said, uh, what we need is for the voters to choose the candidates of each party, and we'll do so in what he called a direct primary election. And direct means it's directly from the voters, and primary means first. So it would be the first of two elections, the second being the general election in the fall. That started uh, in, I think, 1903, 1904, and it spread very rapidly before World War I, And then the parties figured out how to control primaries. They figured out that one of the results of having primaries is that voter turnout dropped. You know, you double the number of elections, Mm -hmm. it makes it a lot harder for people to decide to come out to vote. In addition to the fact that in the general election, if you haven't exactly had the time to study the two candidates, at least they have an R or a D after them, so you can make an educated guess as to who they are. Mm -hmm. In the primaries, they're all R's or they're all D's, Mm -hmm. and um, a lot of people figure that they just don't have the information they need to vote. So turnout in primaries is abysmal. And as a result, party organizations figured out very early that if they sent out a lot of their activists to vote in the primary, they could take over the results. But we had a resurgence of primaries starting in the late 1960s with the turmoil in the Democratic Party over the war in Vietnam and the civil rights issue. And the Democratic Party mandated um, a series of, of goals that resulted in primaries to choose delegates to the national convention. And since then, uh, every state uses primaries, and three-quarters of the states use them for every office in the state.
0: Okay. Obviously, we're going to have a very informative uh, discussion today. So thank you for for Primaries 101. Uh, Let me invite (laughs) our our listeners to join us today. Our phone numbers here are 855-0811. Our toll-free number is 877-285-9348. And our email address is noon at indiana.edu. And we do encourage you to join in the discussion today. Um, And if you plan on calling in, um, it might be be wise not to wait until the last minute because we do tend to have phone calls that uh, kind of back up toward the end of the show. And so you're wise to uh, pretend you're voting in Lake County and uh, call early and call often. <laughs> that's a little insider baseball, I guess. We were teasing about that before the show today. Um, let's let's talk. I little. grew up in Cook County, so I understand that <laughs> very right. well. I'm going to get some bad phone calls from this one, I'm sure. Um, let's talk about primary strategy and how that parties use that a little bit differently than they might for election strategy.
1: If you are going to win a primary, and you'd better win a primary or you're not going to have to worry about having a strategy for the general election, what we've seen in the last few years, really in the last few decades, is that the people who vote in primaries tend to be somewhat more extreme in their views than the people who vote in the general election. About half the states have closed primaries where independents may not be able to cast a vote in the primary. And uh, so you're taking a lot of moderates out of the electorate from the beginning, and that means that candidates generally, if they're in the Republican Party, have to appeal on the right of that party, and Democratic candidates have to appeal to the left of the Democratic Party because that's where the primary voters are. Uh Now, that poses an interesting challenge for you if you win because you have just been on record appealing to the extreme of your party, and the extreme of your party is no longer dominant in the general election. Election. So um, what you have to do is not change your views. You can't very well be strongly pro-life and, and then say you're moderating on the issue in time for the general election. But you have to change the subject. You have to start talking about different issues that moderates are more likely to be interested in.
0: Okay. And just kind of soften, soften the whole, uh, put a soft, Focus on your your views a little bit then for the general. That's right. This really, you're playing to two different audiences. That's right.
1: There are different coalitions of groups that vote in the primaries and vote in the general election. Single-issue voters, for example, tend to vote at an extraordinarily high rate. If you wake up every morning thinking to yourself— 4,000 unborn children are going to be killed today, and I've got to find a way to do something about it. And if you think that there is a candidate in the primary who feels the same way you do, your chance of turning out to vote is probably close to 100 percent. If you're like the rest of us, your chance of turning out to vote is maybe at best 20 percent.
0: And it seems like in, in recent elections especially, uh, those extreme special interest groups have done a really good job of motivating their base and getting those folks out to, to vote. So So would you say it's an accurate statement that the candidates have gotten further to the left and further to the right as a result of this?
1: They have for a whole series of reasons. Um, Certainly groups have a much better ability to narrow cast now as opposed to broadcast. We can pick off particular kinds of voters. The Republican Party did a masterful job of this in 2004. They developed a series of techniques of database targeting in which they gathered lots and lots of basically market research information about you and me and everybody else, about what kinds of cars we drive, what kinds of uh, drinks we choose, um, what movies we see, because there are surveys everywhere and lots of information on each of us. And then they figured out who are the most likely people they wanted to target, and those were conservatives and Republicans who had not been to the polls in recent elections. People, in other words, who were favorable to their message, but had not been coming out to vote. And they discovered things like... um, People who who drive Lincoln Town cars, surprise, surprise, are more likely to be Republican than Democratic, and people who drive various kinds of foreign cars are more likely to be Democratic. Um, and they found that by doing that, they could very easily target uh, a Republican over here, I mean, literally, a particular Republican over here in Ohio and a particular Republican over here in Kentucky, and appeal to those people, and, of course— Various single issue groups do exactly the same thing. The other thing that's really made a difference here is that the two parties have moved farther apart in their views on issues. And the big change came when the South conservative whites moved from the Democratic to the Republican Party.
0: Did you see that when Lyndon Johnson was president, or when did you see that happen?
1: started at around the time of the Civil Rights Movement. Mm-hmm. started very slowly, but very predictably. The most conservative Southern whites were the first to move from Democratic to Independent to Republican, and then it began to spread. The tipping point seems to have been in the Reagan administration. Okay.
0: We've got a caller. Let's go ahead and uh, get our first caller on the show this afternoon. Oh, sorry, we just missed him. Sorry, we kept him on hold for a while. Please feel free to call back. I'll give the phone numbers again, 855-0811. Our toll-free number is 877-285-9348, and our email address is noon at indiana.edu. We're talking with uh, IU political science professor Marjorie Hershey about primaries and the upcoming 2006 elections.
1: Now, you know, with university faculty, if you don't physically stop them, they will continue talking for Weeks at a time. No,
0: that's okay. <laughs>
1: you got to jump in front of them and distract them. Too.
0: That's okay. Well, let's go ahead and go back to that. We were talking about the, the changes that took place then from the civil rights movement or from the time of the civil rights movement on.
1: That's right. And at the time of Lyndon Johnson, uh, the Democratic Party consisted of a lot of northern liberals and then a lot of southern white conservatives. And so the party was pretty diverse. And it was more difficult for the party to, to take a stand on issues in a very clear cut way. The Republican Party actually had some creatures called liberals in it that actually existed in the 1960s. um, And so it was a little bit more difficult to pin the Republican Party down. That is no longer true. If you take a look for liberals in the Republican Party, you will be looking a long time. Mm -hmm. And uh, at this point in the Democratic Party, um, Southern representatives are generally about as liberal as Northern Democrats are. And a good chunk of the Southern Democratic representatives are African-Americans
0: hmm Where do you uh, see things going? Do you see this as a trend that it's going to continue and, and things will become more polarized, or do you think that there'll be some kind of moderating factor that will come in?
1: I think everybody wishes there were a moderating factor that would come in, and I don't see one.
0: Yeah, I think that is kind of a source of concern. Here's an email that came in. Um, it asks, what is the most efficient way to find information about the candidates for the upcoming primaries?
1: There are a lot of ways to do so. One uh, good source is that right before the election, the Herald Times is going to have a keys to the candidates insert from the League of Women Voters that asks some specific questions. Of course, it's not going to ask a whole lot of questions because it just doesn't have that much newsprint to fill. The Herald Times covers the candidates all the time. And I think that would be a wonderful source. Uh, Candidates have their own websites, most Mm -hmm. of them by this time. Sometimes we even see the website in their yard signs, and you can go to those websites, Mm -hmm. knowing, of course, that this is not an impartial source of information. I think one thing that everybody can do is just find some people they know who are involved in local politics and talk to them Mm -hmm. about not just where the individuals stand, but about who they are, what their background is, how good an administrator they may be, um, how uh, they're thought of by mm-hmm. the people they would need to work
0: with if they were elected. Excellent. We have John back. Let's go ahead and get him on. Hi, John. Are you there? I'm here. Hi, Mary Catherine. Hey, thanks for hanging in this time.
2: No problem. Glad glad you could talk to me. Um I can't remember your guest's name, but I, I always look forward to this show because you have such wonderful insights about politics, not only on the local level, the state level, and the national level. It's, uh, I always learn something.
1: Well, thank you. I, I tell my students that, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and the name is and the name is Margie.
2: <laughs> oh, Margie, thank you, Margie. Anyway, uh, I think I understood you to say uh, earlier when you were talking about the uh, primaries um, that the the smoke filled rooms of no longer exist. Is that true?
1: Well, uh, mostly.
2: <laughs> okay, okay. Well, I, I want to take you to Taft just a little bit on that. And, and I, the example that I would use is our own state government. Um, uh, folks like Senator Robert Garden who have been in power for a long time, who don't let things out of committee because of the power that he's given as the uh, Speaker of the uh, Senate. I think that's his title. And that those deals are done in uh, maybe not a smoke-filled room, but out of uh, public view. And we wind up with, uh, well, bills like that have just been signed by Governor Daniels, uh, um, you know, leasing the toll road. That was done in direct opposition to what I think was the majority opinion of the folks of Indiana. And uh, the arrogance of those folks is... um, it's appalling and and it doesn't seem to be there doesn't seem to be a way for the uh, the electorate to uh, to counteract that
1: John, I think I think you're absolutely right. I was not uh, I didn't mean to refer and and hope I didn't to the process by which legislation is generated. I was talking only about the nomination of candidates. And in primaries, it's just not possible anymore for a party leader to nominate a candidate because the primary voters have the last say. But if you take a look at the Indiana Senate and House uh, to not talk about smoke filled rooms would be kind of naive. I appreciate your
0: mentioning that.
2: Yes. And one other thing I would say in defense of primaries is that they allow folks like Gretchen Clearwater, who really doesn't have a chance of winning the election, to bring some things onto the table into the Democratic Party, where the eventual uh, winner of that primary may take those things into account and, and bring them onto to their plate, so to speak.
1: You're absolutely right. And if you take a look at that from the other direction, I think the really interesting question is if you can imagine yourself as the local party leader in a case like that, think of what the primary does to party power. There is a famous case in uh, Southern California in which in a multi-candidate primary, the Democratic Party nominated the local Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan as its candidate for Congress because there were 11 people running for the nomination and everybody knew his name. You know, I mean, the result was, of course, the local Democratic Party chair uh, spent a good chunk of the party's money that election saying, don't vote for the Republican candidate for Congress, which is not what he wanted to be spending his money on. Uh, So Primaries can do exactly what you say. They can bring up a series of issues that, if the party leaders were making the choices, would not get brought up. On the other hand, they can result in some pretty strange um, outcomes in terms of who represents a party's views.
2: What would your be? What would be your alternative to primaries if you had your way?
1: I don't have an alternative to primaries. I'm perfectly comfortable with the idea of primaries. I'm not perfectly comfortable with the low turnout that they engender, Uh because I think that works exactly against what the progressives had hoped for. I think if Robert LaFollette were around right now and saw the turnout levels in which you could win an election with... 50% or even 30% of 20% turnout, uh, he would say, "Mm, let's rethink this one. I'm not quite sure this is what gets what I want to happen.
0: Oh, those unintended consequences. Yep.
1: It's uh, in the nature of political reform. We get a few things we want and a whole lot of things that we never would have believed.
0: Well, thanks for your call, John. We really appreciate hearing from you.
2: You're welcome. It's nice to talk with both of you.
0: Thank you. this reminded me of, of another thing. Um, I know locally we have a Democratic Women's Caucus who, one of their main functions is to um, kind of raise women candidates and, and beat the bushes and, and look for appropriate women to run for office. Um, do you, is this a national trend? Are there other um, grassroots organizations doing this kind of work? And are we seeing any success uh, along those lines? Right now it seems that the vast majority of office holders are men.
1: That's true although uh, that's certainly been changing. There are grassroots movements all over for all kinds of groups. There are pro-life grassroots movements and pro-choice grassroots movements, and uh, they all make a difference. And without primaries, we just wouldn't see very much of them at all.
0: Okay. And we have another John on the line. Let's go ahead and get to him. Hi, John. Hi. Go right ahead.
3: Uh, I, I was uh, interested in what you were talking about, the uh, various polls and, and uh, you know, how things are identified and so forth. One thing that's very curious to me is that uh, there are all kinds of uh, people now that are voting uh, Republican that uh, are very much voting against their what can you say economic uh, 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 point of view, especially at the uh, at the national level. Uh, I wonder if uh, if there's been any uh, uh, identification of uh, issues that uh, could uh, bring those people back into the Democratic Party.
1: Good question. Um, basically, what we see is that class and party voting have never been as closely aligned in the United States as they have been in many countries in Europe. There are a lot of explanations that, that stem from our history. Partly the existence of a two-party system has moderated class voting. But what we've got right now is a group of particularly evangelical Christians who are not as high income as the average Republican, who are voting, if anything, more Republican than the other Republicans are. I've been seeing a really interesting trend over time when we take a look at the array of people from independent to weak Republican to independent to strong Republican. There's been a big increase uh, Big uh, in statistical terms among strong Republicans, and it looks as though it's primarily evangelical Christians, most of whom used to vote Democratic for economic reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, And a lot of that is people who didn't used to vote at all but would have supported Democrats for economic reasons. What we've got is a trade-off here. We've got economic issues on the one hand, and we've got so-called moral issues on the other hand. I don't want to use that term um, without quotes around it because Mm -hmm. there are a lot of issues that we could consider to have moral consequences. Social policy
0: issues, certainly.
1: Issues such as abortion, gay marriage. homosexuality generally, pornography, prayer in schools, um, that the Republicans have used to appeal to those social conservatives who are, by rights in terms of their income, economic liberals. And they've been very effective at it. And I think what's going to happen in the fall is that another issue that serves the same function, and that's fear of terrorism, is going to be at the top of the Republicans' agenda. They're going Mm -hmm. to be able to say, um, and justifiably from their point of view, don't worry about the economic questions. They're all trivial if we can't keep ourselves safe from terrorists and that the people who have had the experience in keeping us safe from terrorists are the Republicans. And that's an issue that also appeals particularly to people who are middle to lower income, people who may not be highly informed about what the world looks like and are fearful of what might happen.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh any thoughts on uh, on issues that uh, Democrats might use?
1: The Democratic issues traditionally have been the the bacon and eggs, um, who speaks for you in terms of your daily life kinds of issues. I mean, uh, I think Democrats could very easily say to people, look, uh, let's talk about what affects you day to day. Um, you're not likely to turn the corner and see somebody from Al-Qaeda, but you are likely to turn the corner and run into one Dickens of a big heating bill. And uh, those are issues that the Democratic Party has long tried to use, and the question is whether or not they're going to be as effective in putting those on the agenda or rather putting them at the
0: top of the agenda as the Republicans have been
3: uh thanks, thanks so much, really.
0: You're most welcome. Thank you for your call, John. We appreciate it. We're going to go to break here in just a minute, but uh, before we do that, I want to give our phone numbers and our email address again, and I will remind you that we are speaking with Indiana University political science professor Marjorie Hershey. We're talking about the primaries and the 2006 elections. Our phone numbers are 855-0811. Our toll-free number is 877-285-9348. Our email email address noon at indiana.edu stick around for the second half of the show we're going to talk about the war in iraq the deficit tom delay and ids at the polls
4: you're listening to noon edition on member support at wfiu production support comes from closets Two, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage using a variety of systems with no major renovations, Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. This afternoon, there'll be a screening and discussion with filmmaker Sonali Gulati about Nalini by day, Nancy by night, a documentary on outsourcing, and that's in Valentine 204 at 4 o'clock. There are downtown gallery walks and receptions at galleries in downtown Bloomington and downtown Columbus this evening. In Columbus, it's First Fridays for Families, the Arts Council presenting Ramona Quimby, a Theater Works USA play about that famous third grader at the Commons, 530 and 715. There's a Sounds Benefit concert. Sounds is students opening up new doors with strings. Owen County Youth will perform selections of violin and fiddle music, along with guest performers from IU's Jacobs School of Music, hosted by Dean Richards of the school. That's at Owen Valley High School, 6 to 7. Saturday morning, WFIU will be collecting books for the Red Cross's annual book sale, and you can drop off your donations of books, DVDs, VHS tapes, and music in front of Borders Books and Music in Eastland Plaza, Saturday from 9 a.m. to noon. More about all of these on our website, wfiu.indiana.edu.
0: And welcome back to Noon Edition. We're here on the second half of the show. My name is Mary Catherine Carmichael. I'm your host today. I'm filling in. I'm usually the co-host, but today I'm filling in for Bob Salzberg, to whom we send our best and uh, look forward to seeing again soon. Joining me today is Indiana University political science professor Marjorie Hershey. And we're talking about politics and the primaries in the 2006 elections. And um, we have a lot of exciting topics yet to cover here in the second half. If you have any questions or comments uh, that you'd like to add to the program, we would welcome that. And our phone numbers here are 855-0811. Our toll-free number is 877-285-9348. And our email address is noon at Indiana.edu. And we would urge you to use uh, any means you choose to contact us, and let's talk politics. Well, one of the most interesting, I think, uh, topics that's come up recently, and and we're going to take a little cast a little wider net here, uh, the time delay situation. Um, <laughs> I, I shouldn't. I shouldn't chuckle after I say that, but it's just been <laughs> so interesting to watch this unfold. I'd love to have your your comments, your assessment on, on how this has uh, come to pass.
1: Tom DeLay, my favorite subject. Um, I think this may be a, just a bit of an exaggeration, but uh, I think this last week we've seen the end of an era as far as the Republican Party in Congress is concerned. Twelve years ago when the Republicans took control of both the House and the Senate, they had been out in the wilderness for a very long time. The the House had been Democratic-run mm-hmm. for 40 years. There were three people who really masterminded that takeover of Republican control and who then took over the Republican Party, particularly in the House right afterwards. Newt Gingrich, he was gone after four years. Um, Dick Armey, who was his co-author of the contract with America, who was the first majority leader on the Republican side. And the majority whip, Tom Delay, and that term is is usually used uh, with people saying, "Well, you know, really, I mean, this just is an old English term that refers to, you know, keeping the hounds in line." Tom DeLay uh, was, in fact, really the majority whip, um, and he took that whipping uh, to a high art over the course of the last 11 and a half years.
0: What kind of tools would he have? Seriously, um, I think maybe it's hard for us to imagine what kind of pressure could be put on someone who's reached that high level of office by another person holding uh, high office, too?
1: That's a a really interesting question because, you know, the the worst thing you can do to a member of Congress is take away his or her seat. And the party leadership can't do that. Just the constituents can do that. So uh, if I had been telling you this 15 years ago, I would have said, Mainly the party leaders have inducements to offer. They can say, okay, you want to be on a good committee. You know, you don't want to be a Congress member from Brooklyn and and be on the Agriculture Committee. You know, follow us. Do what we say. Or you want to make sure that your constituency is treated well in terms of a new post office, a new highway. Follow us. Uh, We'll give you a little bit more campaign money from the House Campaign Committee. DeLay has not limited himself to inducements. He has used punishments, and he has twisted arms, um, the like of which I have not seen. We haven't seen this level of party control over members in the Congress. Can
0: you give us an example, Marjorie?
1: Oh, uh, huge numbers. I mean, uh, there was a case in Michigan where a House member who was retiring and whose son was going to be running for his seat was threatened with not just a lack of campaign money— for for his son, but an active effort by Republican loyalists in his district to deter contributors from giving to his son's campaign if he did not vote with the Republicans on a particular bill. DeLay has kept votes open for much longer than the rules allow. Um, he has then, as soon as he's got a one-vote majority, closed the vote instantly so that nobody can change their vote. Um, And I don't think a lot of us really even understood this until a couple of years ago when uh, things began to, to fray at the seams just a little bit. But I think this was going on for a good 10 years and members of Congress were frightened to death of Tom DeLay and would not even talk to the media about it. And then, of course, there is his famous K Street project in which he basically convinced, quote, unquote, Large numbers of lobbyists to hire only Republican lobbyists Uh, basically told them, you hire a Democrat as a lobbyist for your organization, we will not meet with them. They will be shut out of meeting with members of the House and Senate. They will not be allowed to testify before committees. Uh, He was extremely effective at that. I mean, a list was circulated to big lobbying firms on K Street, which is the street where most big lobbyists live. It's where their headquarters are. That said, here are the names of the Republican loyalists whom we will permit you to hire. If you don't, you know, you're welcome not to, but don't expect to ever see us again if that's the case. And a lot of these folks were spouses of delay staff members and staff members of other Republican loyalists close to the House Republican leadership. Um, There were a lot of wives, sons, daughters, husbands who were hired by lobbying firms because they were regarded as towing the party line.
0: Hmm, that's a tidy little package. Well, why haven't we uh, heard more about this in the press? I consider myself to be fairly well informed, but um, you know, this isn't these haven't been big stories.
1: That's right. I think um I think DeLay's control was so thorough that members of the Republican conference in the House were afraid to talk. I suspect some journalists were intimidated as well. We've seen a lot of stories about this now Mm -hmm. because, you know, DeLay is the only uh, member of that triad left standing. Mm -hmm. And as soon as he was accused of campaign finance violations – then it was a matter of the story just unwinding naturally. And I think a lot of people expected where that was going to lead and that it was not going to lead to Tom DeLay's remaining in Congress and remaining as the head of the Republican Party. Uh So at that point, the walls began to crack, but uh, it took that. So now what? Well, uh, he was replaced by um, the guy who was not Tom DeLay's chosen successor. Uh, Roy Blunt, who is a member of the House from Missouri, was Delay's chosen successor. He would not have been a delay. I mean, there's just a level of, of fierceness and, um, shall we say, lack of, of uh, extreme concern for the rules that, that nobody matches Delay in. But Blunt would have come close. He was rejected. By the Republican conference, they voted for Representative John Boehner instead. Boehner is certainly more telegenic than Blunt would have been. But I think a number of members of the conference were basically saying, look, this this has been agonizing and we're about to be done with it.
0: How do you think uh, or or do you think that this will impact um, the May elections and then into November? What's the I, trickle down of this?
1: Uh, the, I think the, the end result uh, is inevitable. We've seen what we call the six year itch for um, most of American history that in a president's second term, the president's party loses seats in Congress. That didn't happen under Bill Clinton the last time we would have seen a six uh-huh. year itch because the Republican Party in the House and the Senate was busy impeaching and then determining whether or not to convict Clinton in a move that the Republican and leadership thought was great stuff, but that a lot of Republicans in the population were not so enthused about, and that a lot of Democrats and independents turned away from. Mm-hmm. But it's pretty likely this year, so um, it may not be the loss of Tom DeLay so much, although I think the Republican Party is a little more at sea in the House right now. Um, It's a little bit more difficult for the party to be able to get itself unified for votes now without DeLay. Um, And uh, for a while, after he stepped down from the position of majority leader, He was still sitting in there telling people what it is that they ought to do. But now he's basically history, and uh, John Boehner is not going to be able to do it.
0: Any chance of a majority shift?
1: There's a chance, not a good chance. But there's a chance. And in fact, the Democrats probably ought not to want a majority shift because uh, if so, then they will have to be complicit in the blame that people will place on the federal government for whatever problems they feel it's caused. The Democrats would probably be in a lot better shape if they gain seats, um, hold the Republicans feet to the fire and remain a minority so that they can say this is a unified Republican government. If you don't want what it's putting out, then you know what to do in 2008.
0: So they're kind of keeping their powder dry until 2008, in your opinion, the Democrats?
1: Oh, I'm sure they wouldn't turn down majority (laughs) status if they had it. You know, it sort of goes against the natural uh, instincts of anybody in politics. But um, in practical terms, I think they'd probably agree that if they stay the minority, they'll be in better shape in 2008. Okay.
0: You're listening to Marjorie Hershey, who is a political science professor here at Indiana University, and we're talking about politics and the 2006 elections. Our phone numbers are 855 0811, toll free 877 285 9348. And our email address is noon at indiana.edu. And here's an email that just came in. It says Do you think there's any chance that the Democrat Party will be able to come up with a few candidates who don't seem to be willing to espouse any darn thing to get elected? This is a, uh, particularly a problem at the national level, in my opinion.
1: <laughs> I think this is a, its a good representation of a common view that a lot of people feel that somebody who stands on principle is better than somebody who doesn't. I think if you were to say that to James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, they would be horror struck because they would tell you, look, the reason we have a democracy is that we want people to be up at the national level who do say what the public wants. That's what mm-hmm. they're there for. We didn't want a king. We, we got rid of him. You know, he was the one who was standing on principle, Right. Um, And I think, unfortunately, we've kind of developed the sense that there's something wrong with pandering to the public. But in another way, pandering to the public means being a representative, Mm. which is what these folks are supposed to do. I mean, that's why we elect them.
0: Well, I suppose it's we kind of have a high expectation, too, for leadership in the strictest sense of the word. Um, You know, show me a plan, show me vision, and give me something to follow as opposed to um, the other way of looking at it, which is here's what I want you to go up there and do for me.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: And I suppose it's a kind of an indication that most of us really don't have a clue what ought to be done and and, uh, what ought to happen next. And so we have figures such as Ronald Reagan, who um, it looks like somebody who has very strong principles and who is not deterred by uh, changes in public sentiment, but who, in fact, reflected a lot of public sentiment pretty well during mm-hmm. the time that he was there. So you have to both represent people and also look like you're doing it entirely on your own. But I think and have, have a vision
0: for the next step ahead.
1: Yeah, but, you know, it's, uh, I mean, what's that vision for the next step ahead going to be? We can't just reward somebody for having a vision uh, without necessarily looking at the content of that vision. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people are very impressed by the existence of a vision um, without necessarily saying, where's that going to take us? Mm -hmm. Uh, And does that make sense to me? Great.
0: Excellent point. Okay. Here's another email that came in. Um, I expect to be out of town on election day and wish to vote early absentee. I have not seen a list of the candidates. Have I missed one in the Herald Times? And where can I get a list?
1: Well, uh, get yourself a ballot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You'll find it right on there. Uh, I would assume that if you were to go down to the county clerk's office, that they would have a list of those people who have qualified for the ballot. Mm -hmm. Um, Absentee voting has become much easier in the last few years around the country than it ever has been before. In fact, you can absentee vote in person if you want to. Um, And uh, there are some areas, for example, in California, I think about a quarter of the votes uh, in the last few elections, have been cast absentee.
0: Which is to say, you can go to a certain polling site and cast your vote?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I think here you have to go to the county clerk's office mm-hmm. to cast your vote in person before the election. Mm-hmm. But there are many other areas where. As
0: opposed to r- filling out a ballot. That's is right. There, okay. uh-huh.
1: That's right. Uh, and um, mail ballots have become increasingly common. The entire state of Oregon votes by mail mm-hmm. now which raises some interesting questions. Mm -hmm. I mean, when we talk about ballot security... Um, There really hasn't been a lot of evidence that there is a lot of vote fraud at the polls. Mm -hmm. But when you talk about somebody getting a ballot in the mail, Mm -hmm. um, that's a whole different question with regard to ballot security. We have no idea whatsoever whether or not anybody's ballot was filled out by somebody else and then sent in.
0: And here in Indiana, I'm sure we've all uh, started to see and hear the ads um, reminding people that we will now be required to have an ID, and not just any ID, it needs to be a photo ID and there are some qualifications um, even uh, within within that uh, that we will need to have that with us at the polls when we go uh, for the first time uh, in this this primary
1: that's right and it needs to be a state or an Indiana state or national identification you can't bring uh, identification from Kentucky or Ohio so students who are from out of state who bring an out-of-state driver's license will not be able to vote under this new rule now there is a court case that has been mounted against this legislation. And we are still, the, the decision was supposed to have been made in December and then in January and then in February, and we're still waiting for it. Uh-huh. I'm sure that the county clerk is, is uh, just, his hair. yeah, <laughs> hoping that this doesn't happen like three days before the primary, mm-hmm. um, because the rules are going to be really up in the air. This is a piece of legislation that the Republican National Party has been pushing in a lot of state legislatures. Georgia passed one like this. There are a number of other legislatures that are doing this. Basically, uh, when one party pushes a piece of legislation, you can assume that it probably is not expected to hurt that party and that, in fact, it's intended to help them. And uh, the the situation simply is that there are a number of people who do not have state-issued or federal-issued identification cards with their picture on it. Those include a higher percentage of minorities, um, people who don't have driver's licenses, elderly people, short people who vote more Democratic than mm-hmm. Republican.
0: What was the rationale for even proposing this legislation?
1: To try to get more Republican strength expressed at the polls. Well, I doubt <laughs> that that... What did they claim? Yes. <laughs> okay. Huh. Um, uh, the the expressed rationale for the legislation was to prevent voter fraud. There really have been very, very few cases ever proved of voter fraud at the polls. Um, It's just, it's a non-existent problem Mm -hmm. that we're trying to solve here. And interestingly enough, you don't have to have a state-issued photo ID in order to vote by mail absentee. And that's, of course, where voter fraud takes place all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. People marking ballots for elderly voters in nursing homes, stuff like
0: that. Right, right. Well, that seems completely nonsensical. But it'll be interesting to see uh, what Welcome the Welcome to thing- American politics. <laughs> yes, <laughs> It'll certainly be interesting to see what the court decides about this, although they uh, obviously must have felt uh, quite confident in order to push it as far as they have. So we'll see what happens.
1: It's one of the interesting things about party polarization in the last few years that uh, the Republican majority in the House and the Senate is very slim and uh, the Republican majority in the country is quite slim – And yet polarization is so extreme that um, the party in power, and I suspect it probably would be done by the Democrats if they were the party in power, is just trying to milk that slim majority for all it's worth. They're going to get what they can before they lose it.
0: Yeah, well, we've got a caller on the line. Let's go to Don. Hi, Don.
2: Actually, it's John again, Mary Catherine. Oh, hi, John.
0: All right, come back. (laughs)
2: I I don't want to take up the time too much, but I had to just chime in with this. I think it would be very difficult to prove voter fraud or poll fraud with an electronic ballot system that doesn't provide a receipt, the Diebold Corporation being a prime example of this. They seemingly provide us a receipt with our uh, ATM, which they make, but they can't do it at the polls. Uh, my proposal is, is that we do away with electronic voting and we go back to paper ballots. Uh, we have enough time the whole idea, as I understand it, for the elections in November and the at least the president to be sworn in in the latter part of January 1st of February was to give time to count those ballots and to disseminate the inter- information.
1: You're right. Uh, the the question is, however, John, it's a matter of choose your poison. Um, when we had paper ballots counted in Indiana, one of the things that uh, both parties' representatives would need to have on election day is a flashlight so that they would have somebody circling around the, the vote counting headquarters at night to watch for paper ballots that were marked with the wrong party flying out the window in the middle of the night. <laughs> there are ways to deal with any method of voting. Um, it's true that that it's uh, kind of remarkable when you think about the contrast between an ATM and a polling booth um, that, most of the electronic systems, the great majority of them, do not have any kind of receipt for them. The reason simply is that it costs more to do that and that counties and states um, have to deal with elections only once every two years. And so they the, the need for that money just doesn't seem as great as the need for money from the, the jail where the sheriff is coming in saying we've got to have money next week for additional food for the inmates and for various funds for the hospital emergency room and various other things. Um. It, elections are just always going to be a low priority until the week before they happen, in which case everybody starts to say, oh my God, you know, we don't or have the, Or security. the week after
0: when we're like, what was that? Yeah, right.
1: Well, when you think of the numbers of things that we rely on in terms of numbers, um, voter registration figures are are very strange figures. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have, there are more people registered to vote in the state of Alaska than there are adults in the state of Alaska. Um there's a lot of slipperiness that comes in this most important democratic, small-D democratic function. But we tolerate it because, frankly, I think that's what our priorities are. We, the ATM is a heck of a lot more important to us
0: than the voting machine. Thanks for your call, John. I'm glad you called back. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, less than 10 minutes left in the show, 855 noon at indiana.edu. If you have any comments or questions about politics and the 2006 elections, uh, we still have a little bit more time to talk about that. Um, one thing I, I, we haven't touched on really yet, Marjorie, is the war in Iraq. And how do you think, you know, the, the, the numbers continued, uh, public opinion numbers continue to look more and more grim as far as people's attitude toward our involvement in that conflict. How do you think that's going to play out at the polls?
1: I think it depends entirely on how effective the Republican National Party is of uh, using the war on terror as a kind of, an, of a dominant issue for Uh the campaign. That's clearly what they have in mind. We've already seen some information leaked from Karl Rove's office that suggests that that's going to be the plan for the general election. We can see a lot of public opinion polls that then turn out to bring us some surprises when we come close to the election because advertising campaigns can make a difference. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily make a big difference in people's views, but they can make a big difference in the turnout of different kinds of people who hold those views. We've seen, for Mm -hmm. example, that there were lots of public opinion polls in January saying, People were shocked at the corruption, that the Jack Abramoff scandal, and and then when some really good polling was done by the New York Times-CBS poll and asked people, so how important an issue is this to you? First, they'd ask, do you know what the Jack Abramoff scandal is? And about a, a half of the polling respondents said, not a clue. Of the half that had heard about it when they were asked, is this a big issue for you or do you think this is normal operating procedure for Congress so it's not a big deal, the great majority of people said this is the way Congress normally works. This is not the way Congress normally Mm -hmm. works, but it was perceived that way because that's the prevailing smoke-filled rooms image.
0: Mm -hmm. That's unfortunate, it seems to me. I mean that's a very jaded view of of a very important Part of our lives.
1: Well, you know, it's it's easy to be cynical when you don't know anything. Um, it's also, I suppose, easy to be cynical when you know more. But um, I think that uh, for a lot of us, we're real tempted to let these kinds of, of um, stylistic expressions—oh, they're all crooks—dominate. Because then we don't have to spend a lot of time finding out what's actually right. going on. The
0: cynicism is probably a good way to let yourself off the hook. Uh, if you feel the whole process is is uh, kind of uh, corrupt and out of your hands anyway, then, gosh, you don't have to pay attention. Or, or sure, you can spend it. your
1: time watching American Idol instead yeah. of um, looking it up online. Um,
0: don't get me started. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we've, we've got Andy on the phone. Andy, bail me out. Hi. Uh, uh, Hopefully I can. (laughs) It's going to be a loaded
5: question. Uh, uh, I just came in very late in the show, so I don't know if this has been addressed or not. But uh, it just seems to me that there's there's no... there's no candidates for the for the presidential election and i know this is a little early probably to be to be really speculating on this but there in either party it just doesn't seem like there's there's a candidate that's stepping out in fact is on npr they were saying uh how the, the democratic party they're they're really trying to find a face that they can uh sort of associate with and and uh, you know, I think as far as the Republicans are concerned, I think they're having problems in that respect as well. My question is, uh, do you see uh, anybody coming out of the the, the woodwork, I guess, to, uh, any, in both parties that, that may become a front runner before it's all said and done? Thanks, and I'll your answer. Thank wow, you. I
0: love that question. How kind of you. Um,
1: okay. Uh, the woodwork has been gotten out of. Um, Hillary Clinton is in the room. And she is the front runner for the Democratic nomination. There is no question; she has already raised enough money to uh, to. to uh, kill a horse and uh, you know, and she doesn't have much in the way of an opponent for her re-election race to the Senate this fall so that money is going to go right into the presidential race Mark Warner, the former governor of Virginia is one of her main competitors so is former vice presidential candidate John Edwards, they are both out there we're not hearing a lot about them because we're hearing more about the 2006 race but they are all there and they are ready and available on the Republican side um, we have a very unusual Republican frontrunner, and that's John McCain. Um, John McCain is, uh, is about as maverick as you can get and still be a Republican. But at the moment, uh, he's a pretty likely candidate.
0: All right. Well, let's see. We've got a quick email, and then we're going to have to pretty much call it quits. It says, uh, in an online forum after the last election, I suggested that electronic voting be backed up by printing a paper barcode, uniquely ID'd receipt, which the voter could at any time after the election go on online to a website, which could confirm what their vote was and that it was indeed counted. Not too long went by before someone who knew their voter fraud history said, the reason we don't do this is then corrupt politicians can literally pay voters to prove that they voted for the paying candidate. (laughs) <laughs> and it, this well, uh, i like this email ends with a sigh <laughs>
1: <laughs> well we have a long history of that i mean one of the reasons um that we went to the secret ballot to begin with was that party leaders in the cities were um, using color-coded ballots to make sure that somebody had gotten their thanksgiving turkey in return for their vote <laughs> uh did not welsh on the agreement the main reason why we don't have these systems is because they cost more
0: all right well thank you so much for being with us today marjorie we You're certainly most welcome. appreciate it uh, We've been joined today by Indiana University political science professor Marjorie Hershey. Uh, This has been Noon Edition. I want to thank our producer, Nicole Brooks, our engineer, Mike Pashkash, all of our callers and emailers. We'll see you again next week. I'm Mary Catherine Carmichael.
4: Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times.